Welcome to the Human Performance Outliers podcast with your hosts, Dr. Sean Baker and Zach Bitter. At Human Performance Outliers podcast, we dive into a wide range of topics revolving around health, nutrition, and physical fitness. If you enjoy the show and wish to support us, please visit patreon.com forward slash HPO podcast. If you do not use Patreon but still wish to support us, please also consider checking out our PayPal page at paypal.me forward slash HPOpod. The link to both of those can also be found in the show notes. Finally, please consider subscribing to us on your favorite podcast listening platform. Now, on to the next topic. So does he do it? Where are you located? Uh, Sean is based in Southern California, just outside of LA, and I'm in uh, Phoenix. So we do do most of them remotely with with Zoom recording. And then uh, every once in a while, Sean and I will find ourselves in the same location. We'll do, do a one together um but yeah mostly mostly remote it's worked out all right so far how did you guys uh, uh, how did you guys hook up uh you know i actually met sean on twitter i guess technically speaking um and then it was kind of interesting i'd been thinking about starting a podcast for at least a year but just wasn't quite sure what kind of angle i wanted to do and yeah. I do like extreme endurance stuff and follow, uh, yeah, like a high fat diet more or less. And Sean uh, is, you know, carnivore. (laughs) So uh, my thought was with him, like it would be kind of cool because he's kind of the opposite of me in terms of what types of exercises we're doing. He's more like short burst, high intensity, and I'm kind of, you know, run all day sometimes, uh, more aerobic type stuff. Uh, So I thought it'd be kind of a cool combo where we have a a similar dietary approach, but two very different kind of exercise protocols, more or less, or targets. So um, we like to, I like to think we kind of have a lot of areas covered with that. So <laughs> amazing. Hey guys, I'm here. Hey, how's it going? What's up? Are you all right? <laughs> yeah, no, it's kind of, so I'll tell you, it's a tragic story because, uh, you know, we have a, a little six year old boy and, and we have a little gal that takes him to school and she called us. I said, I've been in an accident. She got rear-ended on the 405 near, you know, outside of South LA. It's busy traffic. So she was in carpool lane, trying to train the lane. Somebody smashed into her. Nobody was hurt. So we had to go up there and, you know, just kind of check it out, you know, make sure the boy was okay. And, you know, it's hard to, you know, with all the traffic, there's gazillions of traffic. It's impossible to kind of, so the cops had to come and shut down, shut down the interstate so we could get our cars off the road. And so dealing with that stuff, but the tragedy, the real tragedy of this, I mean, fortunately no one was hurt. You know, the car is going to need a little repairs, but the real tragedy is, I had three steaks cooking. Oh, <laughs> I, I had three butcher boxes. Uh, I had two ribeyes and a, and a New York strip that I was already in the middle of cooking. So I had to shut it down. So I got a steak that's kind of half cooked, half not cooked. Uh, you know, I don't know how it's going to taste at the end, but I'll have to deal with that and eat a little later. So that's Slow my big, and low this time around, I guess. That's my, yeah, that's my big tragedy <laughs> for the day. Right, anyway, so that's thanks. a good tragedy. Hey, do you go by, how do you say your last name, by the way? Is it Leon or Lion? It's lion. Lions. It's not the French pronunciation, which I would, I would, yeah. I would guess. So. so let me just ask you, which branch of the military were you in? I was in the Air Force. I, I did. So I did. Um, I had two sort of forays in the Air Force. I, when I, you know, back in 1992, when I dropped out of, you know, I dropped out of medical school to play rugby, which is kind of a crazy story, but I did that. And then I, when I came back, I still wanted to play rugby. So at that time, the military was the best place in the United States to play. And so I, uh, 
so, so I went, I went into the Air Force and I became a nuclear weapons guy. I launched nuclear bombs for my day job and then I played rugby for them. And then nice. I got tired of getting my head kicked in when I was about 30. So I went back to medical school and military paid for that. And then I came back in as a military, uh, you know, orthopedic, you know, kind of a trauma surgeon guy. And, and I did that for about five years. So got it. when you're in New York, right? Is that right? Yeah. That really my fiance, my fiance is a Navy SEAL. Yeah, and I saw you post something about that. Cool. Yeah. yeah, yeah I, know, so I, know, I knew quite a few Navy SEALs. I used to, as athletes, I used to train with a lot of those guys. Good, good people. Yeah. He's going to medical school. Oh, nice. That's a second okay. career. Oh, interesting. Yeah, it's yeah, yeah. kind of funny. Yeah, I started, like I said, I went back. I was a 30-year-old when I went to medical school. And I think, I, you know, that was, a, I was the old guy. But uh, yeah. anyway, still still staying strong. So uh, I don't know, Zach, did you, do we have an introduction yet and all that stuff? I can't, sorry, I came in late. Yeah, we, yeah. yeah no worries. We've just kind of been chatting. So uh, I, I hit record, though. So we okay, got Okay, cool. So I know, I know. Uh, do you, how, what do you, how do you, how do you like to be called? Do you go by Gabrielle or Gabby or what do you call yeah. Gabrielle. Okay. I didn't want no to. No Gabby. No Gabby. All right. Gotcha. <laughs> Gabrielle. Hey, so I see that uh, one of the things that, that I like that I've seen that you say is you, you practice something called muscle centric medicine, which I, I think do. is a wonderful, uh, you know, wonderful term. And I think it says a lot, you know, and it's just very, very positive. You know, the muscle is an organ. I mean, we don't, we don't understand that muscles are actually organs and, and we, you know, we, we worry about our hearts and we worry about our livers and kidneys, but really, you know, muscle other than our skin, you know, skin's the largest organ in our body, but our muscles are right up there as far as, you know, having hormonal effects and they, they interact. So tell me a little bit about your philosophy, how you got to where you are and, and, and let's just, let's just chat. So muscle centric medicine came about from, so actually I did 17 years of formal education and um, my, Godmother, her name is Liz Lipsky, and she's kind of one of the OGs. Hang on, I got to interrupt you, Gabby. Yeah. You have 17 years of formal education. Does that include kindergarten and high school and all that stuff? Because you, you can't be old enough to have 17 years of formal 17 education. 17 years of formal education. Wow. Um, Goodness. So, yeah, so my godmother, so I graduated high school early. So I started kind of uh, academics early. And I moved in with my godmother, who her name is Liz Lipsky, and she was a nutritionist. So that kind of, I started seeing her nutrition played a massive role in changing people's lives, right? So she would have cancer patients, all these patients come in. And so that changed the trajectory of my life. I then went to study human nutrition, vitamin, mineral metabolism, and that was my undergrad. And I know that Zach mentioned you guys had Stu Phillips on. Well, I was trained by Dr. Donald Lehman, and he is one of the protein experts in the world, right? He is old school, you know, I mean, he killed me for saying that, but you know, He's been doing this over 30 years. Yeah, so we had, I, I had a little debate with Lane Norton and he was, he was also, I guess. A, yes, so uh, actually Lane and I were in the same okay, gotcha, gotcha. lab. So when Lane was a graduate student, I was an undergrad. So we came out of the same lab. Our philosophies in terms of protein are probably pretty similar, although I skew towards a higher protein intake. I'm not nearly as moderate. And I think you and I are be very much in alignment with that, just from what I've seen with my clinical practice. Um, so yeah, so I trained under Donald Lehman, who I still, is still my mentor to this day. Scary, 20 years later, still <laughs> my mentor. Um, then I decided to go to medical school because actually there was, I went to University of Illinois and there was a tornado warning. Have you ever been in a fallout shelter? Uh, I, you know, I was, when I was in, actually my residency, I was in Galveston and we had a, uh, you know, we had, it was, it was, it was after Hurricane Katrina it was the next big one. It was called Irma or something like that. And I had to hide in the hospital basement because I, I was one of the ones that stayed to, to help man. Nice. Of course you were, right. Yeah. Massive man yeah. tasking. So, 
um, there was this tornado. We were down there for hours. And I realized that if I just studied nutrition, I was fucking useless. There was nothing I was going to be able to do. At that moment, I decided I need to go to medical school. So I went to osteopathic school. I was very interested in sports. I was a competitive dance, gymnastic, dance, gymnastics, and track. And I played some soccer. So um, after that, I went to medical school, almost quit, tried to quit, hated it so bad. And then did um, two years of residency in psychiatry and then family medicine, three years, and then a two-year fellowship at WashU in St. Louis in a nutritional sciences, obesity medicine, and geriatrics. Interesting now, background, yeah. yeah. So, so now tell me about, tell me a little bit about your current practice then, because you said, you know, you're seeing, you know, using more protein seems to benefit, you know, the people you're taking care of. Who are you taking care of and what kind of strategies are you using? Overall, the big common factor of all my patients is they want to level up. I don't have any complainers in my practice. I have really hard chargers. I see a lot of elite military operators, SEALs, Green Berets, Rangers. Um, I see a military from Canada. And I see a lot of um, executives, athletes. So that's kind of one huge group. And then the other group is, like I said, it's more of a mentality. They don't have to be an incredible athlete, but they are all very passionate about being relentless for their health. You know, and as a physician, I am relentless about getting what they want for themselves, right? So the first, you know, meeting is kind of an interview. Either we're in or we're out. If you're sitting in front of me and you're telling me you can't give up carbs and all these things, you're out of my office. That's it. One and done. That, that's, that, that's, that's a nice luxury. You know, it's kind of funny. I, I imagine a lot of physicians would like, they, they, they'd like to fire a lot of patients because uh, you know, it's, 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 you know, yeah. that, that, that sort of uh, population you have is, is obviously not the general population in a lot of cases. There's a lot of pay, people that you got to drag kicking and screaming to make. I, I don't see the general population. My, my practice, you know, I think that the practitioner will attract kind of a tribe of individuals. And I think that the, the, I know that the individuals who show up at my door, the average number of physicians that they've seen is 12 before they get to me. I'm cash pay only. I don't take any insurance. And my waiting list is at least a month, month and a half, you know, which isn't that long, but long enough where, you know, they want to get in, they're ready to commit. Yeah. If they've got to wait six months, they may decide somewhere else so that's probably right. so i try try to keep it so the wait is only a month a month and a half and that's just part of the medical practice so if it if it's out too long then you know you adjust and but anyway so they're willing to work right so, i don't get navy seals in there telling me they can't do this that's sure. just not how that works yeah no i, I know the mentality believe me I, i've lived right. it for a long time myself but uh so, you know, but many of the things that you are practicing, I would imagine, would have apl applications to those people that, that you know, aren't the, the sort of hard-charging elite people, just the average people. So let's, let's get into how you, quote-unquote, level people up, because I'm interested in myself, because I'm always interested in getting better. Maybe I'll pick up something here. Okay. Um, so like I had mentioned before, that the average number of physicians my patients see before they get to me is about 12. A lot of them have struggled with weight issues or hormone issues for many years. I see a lot of fatigue, digestive issues, you name it, I see it. And sometimes they're really odd things. But at the end of the day, the first thing that I look at is nutrition, right? You can't out-train, out-diet. If your fundamentals are wrong, 
then you're not going to get better. Right. And I also see a lot of individuals that have been dieting for a long time. So when they get into my office, of course, it's nutrition. We will discuss on the first, the first session, and then you're getting a whole hormone panel, thyroid, everything. And we go from there. And the first thing that we do is all of my patients are put on a high protein diet. And, you know, we think about high protein as something above the average. It should actually just be an optimal protein diet. Cause we know that the RDA came up with 0.8 grams per kilogram. And you know, if you follow those guidelines, the trajectory of your aging is terrible, right? So it's, you will break a hip, you will be osteoporotic, you will never recover from anything. So the first thing I have them do is I teach them not to listen to the guidelines. Good for you. <laughs> yeah, a quick question, uh, Gabrielle, with, uh, when it comes to protein, if you had uh, a client come in and kind of say, like, what is the hierarchy of protein food sources that I should focus on? Do you kind of have like a list that you say, yeah. well, here's the high quality stuff that I would really recommend, you know, and then you can kind of move down the scale if needed. Is that something that you implement? Absolutely. So if I can be a little crass here with you gentlemen, Absolutely. if you don't, oh, <laughs> hang on, let me, let me, let me, let me, let me, let me, let me strap my uh, pants on here. I'm gonna get I, mean, I mean, I don't want to offend anyone, but the truth of the matter is if you don't have to kill it and if it doesn't run fly or swim, suppose eggs and whey are different, then, um, you know, it's not a quality protein source. So it's really gravity bearing proteins, animals. Okay. So and it, and it becomes very emotional for people because the, the sources of protein I recommend are those with a face. And I think because, you know, we talk about sustainability and this emotional tie to protein, you know, we really are not clear in terms of our education. So the emotion skews education. And just like with the military, if you become emotional, right, you're an operator. If you become emotional, then it, it skews your ability to make good decisions. Yeah, no, I, I certainly agree. There's, a, there's, there's definitely a lot of emotion tied up in, in many things and, and nutrition is no different. In fact, it's, it's, it's almost a, becomes religious for some people. Um, you know, and, and Don Lehman, I'm sure, would, would be happy with, with your uh, belief that, that animal protein is better. I mean, I've seen some of his recent papers talking about that. And, and certainly we know that, you know, for instance, whey protein probably, you know, arguably is the best, you know, bioavailable protein out there. And then and it obviously followed by the rest of the animal proteins. And then probably if you go to the plant kingdom, perhaps people might say soy would be the next best source, although it's got all kinds of issues with, with problems with protease inhibitors and, and, and questionable concerns around phytoestrogens and stuff like that. But right. let me ask you, so you got these people on a high protein, you know, a higher protein the diet, obviously, protein obviously diet. they're eating, they're eating optimal protein diet. Uh, obviously they're eating some meat here or quite a bit probably. Um, do you find, cause this is, do you find a dichotomy between the needs of women and men with regard to this? Because there's a lot of women out there that are under the impression that, you know, that that's men food. And, and we really, uh, you know, we really need to stick to our salads and our, and a, and a little bit of strip of chicken. And how do you, how do you deal with that mentality? Well, typically I ask them if what they've done for them in the past 20 years has worked. So they'll come in and say, Oh, well, I have a little chicken salad and I have this. And I say, okay, well, has that worked for you? Now I'm a tiny female. I'm about 120 pounds. I eat two pounds of ground beef a day. And I show it to them, right? And then my snacks in between are protein. Um, and, you know, if they know what they've done in the past hasn't worked, it's, um, they're, they're willing to change. And also when you look at the science, it's really based on blood volume and lean muscle mass, the goal of lean muscle mass. 
But the protein intake at one time, I know you've talked to Sue Phillips and you've read Donald Lehman's work, the, the protein intake at one time, you need to reach a threshold so that you stimulate muscle protein synthesis. And that is not based on male, female. It's not based on the amount of lean muscle mass. It's really at the end of the day, the amount of leucine in the blood at any one time, right? And we know that that's two and a half grams. So that's a, that's a good point because there's a lot of confusion. Say, oh, women need less. Well, it's not that women need less, it's that the size of the individual will determine how much they need. In addition, the distribution does not change depending on the size. Yeah, I don't think it's, a, it's necessarily the science anywhere indicates that women need any less than men. It's just the cultural expectations. You know, we, we have this sort of just, I think it's a cultural thing. And I think there's, there's a lot of, and it's good to see women like you that are thriving can dispel some of those myths. Let me ask you, um, oh yeah, speaking about, you know, the protein requires, because I know Stu Phillips and those guys are saying for muscle protein synthesis, they're, they're talking 1.6 uh, grams per kilo. Although I just see it, saw another study coming out of there that I think, I can't remember who's published it, but I know uh, a guy named, uh, I think it's Jake, Jacob Wilson was talking about one where they, they saw better growth, even up to 2.8 grams yep. per kilo, which is, you know, which is pretty much what bodybuilders, you know, the guys are putting on muscle eat anyway. So it just kind of goes up with, with kind of our observations. So it's kind of very interesting. Let me ask you, so you get these people on a, on a high protein diet. What are the results? I mean, what are you seeing results? Guys, so I always measure inflammatory markers, HSCRP, SED rate, um, all of them go down. And I also track lean body mass over adipose tissue, which is interesting. You know, I, I have this concept that you know, we always talk about being over fat, but that's not the problem. It's really under muscled because as you said earlier, muscle is an organ and it's the largest organ in our body. Um, the average, so the average number, the average pounds of weight loss obviously depends on how much they have to lose and how well-trained an individual is. Like for someone like you, you're already on a high protein diet. If we were to tweak a certain, you know, tweak certain things, it'd be really challenging for you to continue to lose body fat. But the the less trained an individual is, the more body fat, obviously, the faster they lose weight. But my patients lose, they could lose easily over 10 pounds in a month, depending on how heavy they are. I mean, it is, and they come back to me and they're like, doc, I'm not hungry. That binge eating at night, that getting up in the middle of the night, um, they're no longer doing it. Their digestion is better. Uh, their energy levels are better. They're not having these ebbs and flows in blood sugar because we know that a high protein diet allows the body to metabolically generate its own carbohydrate, right? So they're not dependent on external dietary carbohydrates. Uh, Don and I were talking and, you know, we're talking about um, protein in terms of for every hundred grams of protein, you make 60 grams of carbohydrates. And it's this slow, steady kind of influx as opposed to an ebb and flow in blood sugar, which makes individuals emotional because then they're hungry or they're hangry or they're tangry, you name it. Yeah, I've seen actually a number of even type one diabetics that are on a high pro or even an, you know, an all meat diet, which I often have people see, see results from it. And, and when they show me their continuous glucose monitor reading, it's, it's like a flat line. I mean, there's almost zero significant variability there at all. And I think that Again, the point you make is when you make your own glucose, it's pretty well regulated. And glucose is, you know, glucose is still a crucial uh, new, uh, uh, molecule that we, we, we need in our physiology. But the fact that you can, you can so exquisitely and tightly regulate it via making it is, is, is a huge advantage, you know, is what I've seen. Um, 
Let me talk about the importance or lack of importance of fat in the diet. Can you talk a little bit about that aspect? I will. I, I tend not to be fat heavy. And this is from experience. I mean, we do have essential fatty acids. Our needs are not that tremendous. You can get that from, you know, a fat supplement or just having a little extra. You can have some omegas in your diet. Um, I, from my clinical practice, so I was at WashU doing my fellowship for two years. I ran a weight management clinic. That's part of the responsibility as a fellow. You know, we get all those responsibilities. And we saw a lot of metabolic issues with women on ketogenic diets. They had a nice honeymoon phase for about four weeks. And then the majority of the women were ballooned up, were not able to lose weight, were putting on fat. And this is very tightly controlled. Um, WashU is a phenomenal institution. They have a ton of resources. So for high fat diets, it's really not something that I recommend. And I've seen a lot of men have hormonal issues in long periods of ketogenic in ketogenic diets. But I mean, I think if you have the physiology, there's something to be said for it because all of these people wouldn't be doing well on it if that was the case. Zach, I know you are a high fat endurance athlete. So, you know, again, I think it comes down to the individual biochemistry of the person. Yeah, I think one of the, and we're seeing this as this sort of ketogenic community evolves, you know, I think part of the fact is, you know, you know, not to not to sort of take any credit here, but I know that that the fact that we see so many people eating, you know, basically a bunch of meat, still making ketones, eating a bunch of protein, is starting to shift the the the, the conversation a little bit. And I know classically, many people were just so enamored with getting so much fat. I mean, you know, just drinking ex, ex, right. extra calories and fat. And you know, I think, in my view, while you know, fat has some nutrition and there are some nutrients in there, just that tremendous bolus of, of high density calories is not always in your favor. And, you know, it's still, you know, I tell people uh, protein, you know, a meat heavier protein diet is definitely got some advantages from a metabolic standpoint, but it's still, it's, it's still not an all you can eat buffet. You still have to work within a framework. And, and, and even though you may be at an advantage and for many people, that advantage is simply just enough. They can, they can just eat to satiety and, and, and everything works out. But there is a limit on all these things. And I think that's, that's, a, that's a nuance that a lot of people seem to lose a little bit. I yeah. think that that's a really good point. And I also think that we don't know. I think there's a lot of data that supports sarcopenic obesity and sarcopenia as we age in terms of protein needs being a minimum of double. I think that we don't have data to support or to guide us in terms of ketogenic diets and aging. So muscle is your metabolic currency. And we know that the, you know, from what I understand, the ketogenic diets are muscle sparing, but you don't want to just be muscle sparing. As you age, you want to continue to stimulate that tissue and build. I think that becomes a real problem when you look at the geriatric community and those entering into older age with the change in activity levels and change of hormones becomes massive. Yeah, you, you touched yeah. on, you know, the role of leucine in, in muscle protein synthesis. Obviously, I think there's pretty good evidence now that shows that that's, that's probably the main trigger as far as, you know, if you're going to get some protein, make sure it has some leucine in there. But let's talk a little bit about, um, you know, why, why as we age do those protein requirements go up, do you think? I know, I know some people just, they just have a hard time absorbing it. And I don't know if it's just a lack of absorption or, or, or if there's something beyond that. You know, we see these people... You know, the, the typical example, you know, you don't see a lot of real huge fat people making it to 90 years old because they just die before that. But I mean, you see 
these skinny, frail, and, and every 90-year-old woman or 100-year-old woman I'd ever seen was, I mean, I mean, they lay, they lit there, they lay there from the stretcher as I, as I met them and with their broken hip telling me how miserable they were. Don't ever right. live to be 100. And so we see this, this is our, you know, this is what we expect for aging. I would argue that may not necessarily be the true, the, 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 the path that everybody needs to take. Talk about, you know, what we can do from, a, from an aging standpoint, besides just eating more protein, there anything else we can do to, to try to prevent this, this sort of from happening? Let's take a look at what goes wrong and what changes as you age. Number one, when you just think about the fundamental baseline absorption and ability to break down, stomach acid decreases as you age. And we know that. So we know that the capacity to break down and absorb protein goes down. The other aspect of that is individuals will then to consume, will begin to consume less protein. I've heard so many times in the geriatric clinics that I've worked in that they feel really tired and heavy after they eat. So individuals and also chewing becomes an issue. So there is this protein inversion that happens. That begins as the body changes. So the protein intake that individuals typically as they age, they reduce their protein intake naturally because they're not supplementing with betaine, hydrochloric, you know, hydrochloric acid, those kinds of things. The other thing that happens is there's a decrease in splanchnic extraction. So the uptake of amino acids in the blood is less. So that's the second thing that happens. And then the third thing that happens is anabolic resistance in the muscle. As muscle ages, it changes. Unfortunate, but true. This may be different for individuals who are always active. We don't know. But from what we know now, anabolic resistance is the requirement of more amino acids, a higher level to then trigger that muscle protein synthesis. And in general, higher levels of amino acids at one time to begin these metabolic processes because the body, you know, we become insulin resistant. You can become, in a way, amino acid resistant. Not exactly in that way, but you do require more. So as you age, these, you know, it's stacked against you if you continue to eat the way you did in your 20s and 30s and also train in a similar way if they're doing a lot of cardio and non-heavy weight-bearing activities, which a lot of individuals who age tend to shy away from. I wonder, you know, Gabriel, I wonder why, you know, for instance, you know, the, the, the issue with decreased uh, hydrochloric acid production, because I know there's a lot of people that take proton pump inhibitors, you know, because they have reflux and stuff like that. But I mean, I wonder if there, what is the intrinsic thing that's going on that generally cause that and if it's avoidable. And, and my suspicion is it may just be, you know, a consequence of just a general decline that occurs based on years of a crappy diet. And, and I think maybe, you know, because I, I mean, I eat a you know, shit ton of meat every day and I got no problem. I'm in my 50s right. and, you know, I got zero problem digesting that stuff. And so I, I just wonder, you know, if that's something that's recoverable. That's the other, other question. If, if you know, if, if, and I think, I think in, just on observation, I do think it may be to some degree. So it's kind of an issue to talk about. Yeah, I don't know. I, that definitely inspires me to, to look it up and see what is available on that. Um, I don't know if things are recoverable but it would make sense that the, body, that the body could adapt. And as you begin to increase the protein intake, that the body could then adapt. I don't know, I don't know in terms of that. So one of the things that becomes really important as you age is that protein bolus. We wanna talk about Don Lehman. He has 50 grams of protein per meal. Yeah, I was actually gonna ask about that because I think like sometimes when people think about protein, they, they 
typically kind of gravitate towards two maybe different looks at it. And one is like, how much protein am I going to get in a specific needle versus how much protein should I get? Or am I going to get in a day? Um, do you, do you mind sharing with us kind of what your thoughts are on that? Is it a big deal if you're getting your, your protein quota by the end of the day, or should that be kind of spaced out? And if spaced out, is there a kind of a target number to aim for to try to generate, say, like an anabolic response versus just too small to really induce that? Absolutely. As an individual ages, so let's, let's take a step back. When you're young, you can do whatever you want and you're going to get results. You could be a complete moron, lift weights, eat Twinkies, and be ripped, jacked and tan, no problem. College, I've seen it all the time. When you're young, you have dietary flexibility. So you actually require less dietary protein because you are driven by hormones, growth hormone, testosterone, even insulin. So getting away with less protein, it doesn't really matter whether you're having um, a little bit under the leucine threshold per meal, as long as you're reaching some kind of quality protein in a 24 hour period. Doesn't mean that it'll be optimal body composition, but you certainly can still build because you are making up for it with hormones and age. Something interesting happens. When an individual ages, they typically take the habits in their 20s and they push that forward to the habits in their 50s, 40s and 50s. As decrease in stomach acid happens, as increase in anabolic resistance happens, the body protein need actually goes up. So you have total amount of protein typically goes up. Injury, stress. I see, you know, there's data to suggest that um, individuals with GI infections, parasites, all of those require higher protein. What happens is you then have to split up the amount of protein that you eat per meal. The amino acids in the blood per meal to reach that threshold at say two and a half grams to begin that muscle protein synthesis process becomes necessary if you wanna to continue to maintain and grow your muscle as you age. And that amount, that process starts at 30 grams. It doesn't max out till likely 50. So my recommendation for individuals as they age would be to really hit 30 to 50 grams per meal and to then decide on the per meal and then to decide on the quality of the protein is the next thing and then the overall amount. Mm -hmm. Actually, I would say you probably pick the overall amount, then you distribute it um, appropriately, and then you have the amount um, of quality. So it has to be of a quality amount. For anabolic, and actually as an individual ages, we know that when you resistance train, you increase blood flow to the muscle. So following a resistance training for an older individual to then have protein right after a meal, you actually can get away with less protein, um, but that would be an ideal time. Yes, yeah, so that was going to kind of be my follow-up question too, because like when we're getting up to numbers in the 50 gram range, to me, like I'm kind of trying to process in my head what that looks like on a plate. And when I think of an animal-based protein meal, 50 grams is not that difficult to hit. I, I probably exceed that quite often, especially when I'm eating fewer, larger meals. Uh, About seven ounces. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. So now you flip that over and say, like, if I was going to do that from a plant-based standpoint, I'm 
kind of juggling two things at that point. I have to try to hit that number, but I probably actually need to go a fair bit above that because I'm not getting these complete proteins. So I have to be really careful about how I'm mixing and yeah. then probably overshooting by enough just to make sure those combinations are matching out to get that 50 grams of complete protein. So you'd want to increase if you're plant-based 25 to 35%, mm -hmm. which uh, then of course correlates with a, a large increase in carbohydrates. The other way to avoid that is to hit your protein goal from a plant base and then add in um, a branch chain amino acid. Also can work. Um, you know, 2% of the population does amazing plant based. Mm -hmm. It's a very small amount. And, and one of the reasons they believe that is that there's some research that's coming out that the microbiome, that the bugs actually break down and begin to produce the essential amino acids in about 2% of the population. You know, I, when I, I, I try not to get too involved in some of the arguments <laughs> on Twitter and wherever yeah. else when it comes to like vegan v omnivore slash carnivore, um, although I do find them very fascinating. And I can't help but think sometimes when I'm looking at it, it's like, do we have a person here who kind of fits that 2% bill and then someone who's like on the opposite of that spectrum? And if they would even try to eat that same diet, they would just be met with all these negative consequences and you have these two people trying to project their experience on one yeah. another and it's like impossible for them to kind of see the view from the other person's angle and you just end up going back and forth. And uh, at the end of the day, my, my conclusion usually ends up being that there are no absolutes, but there's definitely a lot of, you know, valuable information out there that you can glean from. And then ultimately trying it and seeing how you feel is, is probably the way to go. But then, uh, you know, keeping a, a careful eye on the science and like the stuff that you're presenting is, I think, important as well in terms of if trying to optimize and making sure you're Absolutely. not selling yourself short. And I think that the science is really slow. You know, I think that the concept of a carnivore diet works phenomenal. Anyone with any kind of, you know, autoimmune infection, there's all sorts of things that I've seen that they do really well on. But I don't think that we have the science yet to support it, but we will. You know, eventually we will, just like we've had it to support all these other nutritional ventures, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think sometimes it's like you almost need the pendulum to swing one way in order for the motivation to get for the other side. So with some of this stuff, you know, we see this like eat Lancet stuff coming out and saying, you know, eat your eighth of ounce of meat a day or whatever it's advocating for. Now all of a sudden there's incentive for folks who are in the labs who kind of know what the protein synthesis stuff it all entails to, to maybe start continuing to dive in or take divers or get motivated to dive into this more and so that we have accurate information out there for people. Yeah. And I think ultimately because of costs and, you know, I think ultimately what is going to happen and, and I was talking to Don about this is we probably will have a blended, a blended uh, protein source for those that can't afford it because I mean, it definitely is expensive, right? I mean, it's not more expensive than your health, but I think that it is cost prohibitive to a lot of individuals. So. Yeah, I mean, it's going to be interesting to see, you know, how, how things play out over the next decade or so. You know, it's just, as there's different, there's definitely some very passionate people on kind of both sides of the argument. I am very kind of disturbed when I see, uh, you know, a recommendation for a diet that's, you know, by calorie, 53% grain added sugar and seed oils. I mean, to me, yeah. that's a disaster. I mean, it's ridiculous. I, I mean, you I know, can't believe anyone's even having that conversation or but entertain. That, but that, but that is being pushed and embraced, you know, 
by media all over the place. And you you just have to see the, uh, you know, who sponsored some of this stuff. And it's, you know, all these you know, processed food companies. And you wonder, you know, you, you wonder about that sort of stuff. And it's kind of, it's disheartening to think that, that people are, are just kind of not even questioning that in a large degree. And you know, there's people out here like us, I feel like, Sometimes I feel like John the Baptist out there in, a, in you know, out in the wilderness screaming, you know, trying to say, look, this is great. No way. I am totally here to support you. I think that a lot of the things that you say are absolutely right on. And what I see, I mean, I've seen thousands of patients and this is what I see in my clinical practice. So. Yeah. I mean, it's, and it's good to see more and more practitioners. And, you know, as I've been doing this, you know, I've seen more and more physicians that have said, okay, I'm going to, I'm just going to test it out. And, and by and large, you know, particularly for certain patients, they're seeing really good results. And so if, if anything, you know, we can utilize it as a, you know, a, a quote unquote meat-based diet. If you want to, if you want to coin a term, instead of using plant-based, a meat-based diet can be utilized very effectively for a whole host of conditions. And as I've said repeatedly, and get, you know, many people say, well, you can't do it for your whole life or the whole planet doesn't need to, can't be on it. I'm not, and no one's really advocating for that. We're just saying right. use it as a tool. If it works for you and you like it and you want to keep doing it, I think that's fine too. But I mean, at, at the end of the day, uh, you know, I'm more interested in results and I'm sure you are. I'm sure your patients appreciate that. They want results. They don't care about philosophy. They, they want it. They want to, at the end of the day, when the rubber meets the road, they want to feel better. They want to perform better. And uh, now for a word from our sponsors, this episode of HPO podcast is brought to you by a company named fat snacks. That's fat snacks with an X. Fat Snacks is a company that makes a cookie that is keto, low carb, and high fat. They use ingredients like almond flour, coconut flour, and butter to make a soft bake cookie with one to two net grams of carbs and eight grams of fat per cookie. It comes in flavors such as chocolate chip, lemon, and peanut butter. This personally is a, an option that I've used in the past when I'm traveling, when I'm in a situation where I might be busy and on the go for quite some time and just there's a scarcity of what I would consider high quality food options. This is a great thing that's easy to pack and bring along and get you out of a pinch in a situation like that. Uh, I also see this as a really great option for parents with children who want to send them to school, to practice or to a friend's house and don't want them to overdo some of the more traditional options that are sugar and vegetable oil based cookies. Uh, if you'd like to check out this product, please head over to their website at fatsnacks.com and with the promo code HPO, you can get 5% off your first single order or 10% off a subscription order. Also, if you get a chance, head over to Instagram and Facebook and give them a follow or a shout out at Eat Fat Snacks and let them know that HPO is very grateful for their support. Now, back to the show. Talk to me about some of the uh, sort of interesting uh, sort of patients you might have had without obviously revealing their identities, but and some of the things that you may not have expected to have gotten better via nutrition, you know, before you really knew anything about it. Um, in terms of their, in terms of their conditions or in terms of the nutrition, because I've always implemented uh, high protein. That's always been fundamental yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot of conditions out there that we, you know, I mean, you know, for example, autoimmune disease. I mean, we, we basically, the, the answer is it's idiopathic. We just don't know. And so now you're seeing. You know, oh, you mean of, in terms of what I've seen in my clinic? Right, exactly. Okay. I, there's one woman that comes to mind and she had actually tried for 20 years to lose weight. When she came to see me, she brought a stack of books. I mean, she probably had 15, 20 nutrition books. 
uh, based on different diets. And she actually, I had her, you know, I examined her and um, I had her see a tropical medicine specialist. She had whipworm and entamoeba histolytica. You know, she had traveled out of the country. So she had two significant pathogens. She also was eating kosher and she, you know, looking at her hormones, she was thyroid resistant. So her reverse T3 was through the roof. I put her on a largely protein based nutrition plan and really scaled everything else out. She lost, I would say, since she's been with me, she's lost about 50 pounds. And within the first, I don't know, three months, easily lost 30 pounds of fat. We're talking body fat only. And it was like that. There wasn't a huge change in her exercise routine. There wasn't anything outside the normal other than shifting up her nutritional composition, treating her for two parasites and thyroid resistance. Did you did you significantly reduce your caloric intake at the same time, or was it just protein? Yeah, because that's I one of the not. things. Yeah, that's one of the things people will talk about. It's you know, you have to be in a deficit, and I think that again, I think that's also a confusing term because a deficit can mean a different thing when your when your nutritional composition is different. I think protein is a huge lever that can, you know, you can eat more of it, and and that can change where you're at a deficit. So I think you know, I think the whole concept of you know, calories mattering. Again, we talked about that. It still does, but I mean, you can be in a deficit eating more calories if more calories come from protein. Right. And we do know that there's an increased thermal effect of feeding. And we know that uh, protein intake, leucine increases fatty acid utilization. Um, arginine helps with NO2 production, vasodilation, blood pressure, all of these things. I did reduce her carbohydrates, but she was largely calorie controlled. Her calories didn't change. I reduced her fat. I changed her... Um, Pre and post nutrition timing, I put her on time restricted feeding. So she would eat in an eight to nine hour window and it was like magic for her. She is amazing. She is a very high powered woman. So she is um, very prominent in the community here in New York. And that's just one example. I have Hashimoto's patients that come in plant-based, they're doing the juice press, they're eating so healthy, all of this stuff and their antibody numbers are through the roof. You put them on a high protein diet, reduce their carbohydrates, even reduce their vegetables, right? I mean, vegetables are carbohydrates and can be inflammatory for people. Can't tell you why that is, but this is what I see in clinical practice. Yeah, I mean, I, I've obviously seen that observation as well. Um, so, I mean, I guess to say, you know, the people that are engaging in all these juice cleanses and, you know, these, you know, smoothie detoxes, that you would not be a particular fan of that, I'm guessing. I'm not. I'm not. And, um, you know, my practice is a combination of integrative medicine. And so, you know, I use the best of Western medicine and the best of integrative medicine. What is also very important to me is to have integrity as a scientist and to have integrity as someone who is very uh, highly educated to give that to my patients. So if, for example, I'm going to recommend something, a supplement or some kind of modality that is outside, say, conventional medicine, you better believe that I'm looking at the data for it. Let me ask you what, you know, just, just because nutrition is one piece of the puzzle, obviously, and it's a very big part of the puzzle. You know, I think probably arguably the largest part for many people. What percentage of the people that you take care of, you know, you just fix their nutrition and, 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 and that, that solves it versus, you know, what percentage needs some more additional stuff. And let's talk about the additional stuff that you might have to do. Yeah. So the, uh, you know, if I were to think about percentages, I would say, depending on the, the length of time the issue has gone on, 
what I found is the longer that there has been an issue, the more additional therapies you'll use. You know, I'll use Sixenda, GLP-1 agonist. I'll use Phentermine if I need to, if I put them on a fast, right? So depending on if their BMI is a certain amount, the treatment has to match the severity of the illness overall. So if someone has been coming in for, I don't know, couple months, not feeling well, a year, hey doc, I've really put on weight, then nutritional interventions can work. But I would say the majority of the time, it's not only nutrition. You know, again, but that my patients self-select. So they've been to 12 other physicians, they've tried everything, and typically it is not just nutrition. They're, they've dieted forever, their thyroid numbers are messed up, they're not sleeping, their hormones are messed up, you know, all of those things that need to be treated. How is uh, how do you see the role of exercise and, and what do you, you you and what do you sort of recommend for your patients? You know, is it tailored for specific patients? Do men have to do something different than women? Yeah. All my patients lift weights. If you're not willing to do the heavy work, you're out. There is no Pilates is great. We do not count Pilates as exercise. Yoga is great. I do not count yoga as exercise. If you are not picking having things up and putting it down, you are not training. I, I have to say that makes me smile. I, you know, because I, you know, I, I, you know, I see all, you know, and I, and I think it's fine if people want to do yoga. But I mean, if if I had a finite amount of time to do my exercise, yoga would not be at the top of my list of things I would do to get get things done. I'd and it's amazing, you know, we might get a lot of pushback from this. These, they're all these are all wonderful things to do in in addition, right? It's like having a house that is all window dressing. If your fundamentals are not in place. You are not a working hard enough where you're suffering a little bit. So micro suffering is important depending on what your training schedule is. You should be lifting heavy weights depending on your training status. I outsource to people that I think are great programmers. Um, people spend their entire life doing this. So I always, you know, we talk about the fundamental core compound movements and lifting heavy enough. And then I outsource it so that I know that they're doing it and that they are working with someone who is, um, pushing them and all my trainers are vetted and they're the best. Yeah, I was actually, I was looking on your website a bit and that, that was one thing that kind of caught my eye was you, you talked about there's the difference between exercise and movement. And you know, we've touched on that a little bit here, but I think it's, it's worth diving into a little more just because a lot of times people do kind of couple those into the same category where, you know, a 30 minute walk becomes exercise versus movement. Uh, and they all lumped together. And then there's not necessarily, I think that one of the biggest issues I see when we look at movement in general is it's kind of this nebulous, like undocumented, um, unmetric, like, you know, there's no tangible really to it. It's not like, oh, I went into the gym for three weeks and I've been doing this strength protocol that the train would put me on. And now I can lift X number of pounds more. I think there's a lot more you can kind of goal oriented towards what I would consider true exercise versus just movement. Right. Uh, do you want to, could you share with us like how that conversation kind of takes place with someone who comes into you for the first time when you start like unpacking that, how do you look at like, here's what you're doing. Here's what I want you to do. This is exercise. This is movement. Right. So the basics, so I take them back to kind of what the ancestors do, you know, and my dad who's in his seventies, he won't take public transportation if it's three hours or under so if it takes him three hours or more walking to get there, he'll take public transportation. Um, so there's this concept of, you know, we think that 10,000 steps is enough and we have these, you know, we're domesticated. We are a weak society. We are domesticated. We take the escalator, the elevators, 
you know, we're very softened. And I think that the first conversation that we have, you know, when I talk to my patients, it's like, okay, so what are you doing? On a very fundamental level, and if they're telling me they're walking for exercise, and I say, so we have this conversation of, well, what were the people back in the day doing? In order to age in a way that will support us, you have to put in some effort, grit, and resilience, right? So strength is earned. So you take away, if they're walking, you know, 10,000 steps, I mean, that's just to live, right? I mean, it should be 20,000. So I have them always, you can't change what you don't track. So everything is tracked. Their numbers are tracked. We're talking about, you know, if I have some novice individuals that haven't lifted weights, I'll send them to, you know, particular trainers in the area or I'll coordinate someone with someone where they live, you know? So that's number one. You know, I can give you, if there's listeners in New York, I use Don Saladino. You have the Dog Pound, Halaby Life. There's all these amazing places. And then for remote programming, Lane Norton, I use Kara Lazowskis. She's a, a Titan Games athlete. She's amazing. You know, so you have kind of direct uh, discussion with these people and, you know, you plan it out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, the other thing that, that stuck out to me about your description too was you talked about the why. And I think that that is so important. I use that in my own coaching and consulting because when someone comes to me, you know, most people are coming to me for endurance related stuff. Uh, sometimes I'll, I'll get people coming to me because they want to know like how I implement a high fat diet, low carb diet, whatever you want to call it into a training program. Uh, but if when, whenever we, the topic of exercise comes up, if it's not very clear, like what their why is, we dig into that because um, you know, sometimes you'll have someone who's like, they go out and they, they're running because they think that's what they're supposed to do right. when they really should just be in the gym based on what their actual why is or what their actual goals are. So really unpacking the motivation behind something and the, the way I preface that to the, the folks that come to me specifically for ultra marathon is we look at like, uh, in ultra marathon running, there's such a variety of things you can do. You can do something that's 50 kilometers. You can do stuff that's six days long. You can do stuff that's flat on a 400 meter track. Yeah, it's really for the, the weak and feeble is what you're saying. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, the, the folks who have time on their hands <laughs> is what it's for, but it's, uh, um, it, it's funny to me because like people will come in and they'll, they'll want to train for a specific event and uh but sometimes they don't necessarily enjoy the process of getting to that event so we usually try to back up at that point and say well what do you want to be doing in this 16 weeks leading up to that event because that's how we should be deciding what you're going to do at the end of that the end should be kind of more or less a celebration of all that hard work you did to get to it so if the event you're trying to prepare for is the least exciting thing that you need to be doing to get ready for it. You should pick something else. So you're just going to have a miserable experience for something that maybe isn't even a true passion. I I think that that is very well said. And in my own practice, mindset is 50%. I always know exactly where, you know, being a female physician, you get away with a lot without getting punched in the face. (laughs) So you can poke and you find the underbelly. Uh, You know, for my patients, I don't care where they're strong. I only care about their weaknesses. Mm -hmm. I want to know where they fail in every domain of their life. Because when you start to unpack where they fail, where they fail in, say, um, a standard operating procedure and the way that they're thinking about something, are they giving into temptation, right? Do they not have emotional discipline or emotional leadership within themselves? You kind of tease out where the individuals fail and then you, you kind of unearth it and you poke at it. And those, by determining that, the why then falls into place and it really gets the best out of the patient. I mean, I think that's a very, you know, fascinating uh, concept, you know, and I, I mean, very, very smart to, to say, well, why do you fail and not worry about your strength? 
Let me shift gears a little bit and ask you about, because we, we, we all are kind of like, you know, maybe we don't like a lot of carbohydrates, but how do you use carbohydrates in your practice? Tell me about how you use them. If they feel they need it, I'll use it pre or post-workout. It really all depends. I don't think that there is a, you know, I know what the, the RDA is. I know what that they recommend. But I think that, like I said before, the, the body makes it. So for those that are naive to a high-protein diet, I'll start them at 30 grams three times a day. You know, and that can be carbohydrates. It's a max of 30 grams of, of carbohydrates per meal because we know really anything over 40 begins to push insulin a little too much. Also pull them off of fruit. And, you know, we use complex carbohydrates depending on if they are protein adapted or they feel really weak, say the next day for recovery, then I'll add in a complex carbohydrate post-training or I'll utilize their carbohydrates pre and post-training. But I can tell you with myself and the athletes that I see, it's all really uh, dependent on the individual for sure. But the baseline answer to that is 90 grams of protein or 90 grams of carbohydrates separated 30 grams or less per meal. Yeah, it's kind of interesting that you're so uh, sort of flipping about how not revering the RDAs. And, you know, I, when, I, when I look at, you know, how the RDAs were developed, I'm like, you know, what population was it developed on? And, you know, even the, you know, the Institute of Medicine who reviewed that in 2007 said it's all expert opinion. And so I, I really think we're, we're really kind of operating on assumptions that, that haven't really been proven. And so I think, you know, the recommendation that we only eat, you know, 0.8 grams of protein uh, a day, you know, is what, what we're hearing is, is just, I mean, it's just wrong in my view. So, I mean, it's, it's, it's kind of, it's kind of refreshing to see other people's, you know, taking up the mantle and, and questioning that stuff. And more importantly, you know, you know, talking, you know, walking the walk and saying, this is what's happening with actual people. And I think that's yeah. really awesome. And all my patients will tell you they do it. They are not in my practice. There is a risk of being kicked out. Yeah, I believe it. It sounds from talking to you. I believe they, 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 live, they live in fear. <laughs> <laughs> I will tell you, I have this, this very strong fundamental belief that I don't enable people, that I make them capable. And I think that the way in which our medical system is set up is to enable individuals. I refuse to do that. Yeah. And a lot of times with that too, I think it's like the initial response to that is maybe a little being taken aback or a feeling like, like they need to defend themselves. But over time, I find that like when you put someone in that position, they feel empowered because now they're making changes and eventually they're making changes on their own and they realize that and they ultimately would come back and thank you, I would imagine. <laughs> they do. And ultimately, you know, we never wait for motivation. We depend on discipline and commitment. And if I think they're really struggling, I expect a report at the end of the day, did they follow their program? Yes or no? The answer is yes or no. If the answer is consistently no, you're out of my practice. Let me ask you about, you know, because you've been doing it for a while, I assume, what kind of sort of mistakes did you make early on that you, that you later adapted and changed? Because we all learned. I negotiated. I negotiated with my patients. And this is why I have such a strong fundamental belief that they either get on the program or they're, they're out. So when I first started practicing and when I was in residency, I would negotiate with the patients. Well, they can't just make all these changes at once, or they need to do it a little bit. And I over time realized, I, you know, I spent a lot of time thinking about those that are successful and those that fail. And the majority, 90 plus percent of my patients are successful. And the reason is, is I've kind of cultivated the characteristics and been able to identify, you know, after thousands of patients, who, what are the core ethos of these individuals versus the ones that fail. So initially in my practice, I was a lot more flexible. 
with the patients. And I realized that that flexibility really did them a disservice because I would say, oh, well, you know, you can cheat or, oh, no, you don't really have to do this for your Hashimoto's or, you know, we can kind of negotiate. That never worked. And um, yeah, I would say that was, the, that was the number one biggest thing was negotiating in what I thought was best for them. I mean, of course, there is a dialogue that is, you know, what a patient is willing to do versus not. But on some of the big things, they can't negotiate. No, you can't drink beer every night. Or you can't drink beer four nights out of the week and get results. You can't be my patient. I cannot help you. For me to tell you that you are going to be successful and that's okay, it's, it's, not, it's not true. Yeah, it's interesting you, you mentioned the beer thing because I, I constantly get people asking me, you know, what alcohol works with the diet. I'm like, none. I mean, it doesn't matter what diet you're on. It's, right. it's not a health food. And so I tell people that and they... You know, the one thing that I've, that I found also peculiar is that, you know, when people do make this change and often a dietary change that some of these other things, these habits like smoking and, and drinking too much alcohol, their desire for that stuff goes away, which I think right. is also pretty cool, which I don't know if you've seen some similar I things have. like that. Well, we know that um, protein is a fundamental building blocks for, for neurotransmitters. So we know that the higher protein, you know, people talk about carbohydrates helping with serotonin and those kinds of things. But really, when you look at the fundamental building blocks of protein, protein is the foundation for serotonin, melatonin, norepinephrine, you know, all of them. So a higher protein diet definitely seems to calm down that kind of amped up addicted brain. You know, and Heather Leidy did studies about that in terms of um, looking at uh, brain imaging and high protein meal being the first thing versus a high carbohydrate meal. We know that their cravings and um, desire to eat other things later on, four hours later was less with a high protein meal. How many, uh, you know, I guess, how many patients did you have to kick out of your practice just out of curiosity? Um, I would say in the beginning more, not so much anymore. I would say out of every hundred, there might be two. Um, like by the time they get, I mean, so, you know, the last time I negotiated, I have a patient that's addicted to chocolate, but I just love this girl, you know, and I told her that if she can't, if she, you know, she's eating, I don't know if she's eating like two or three bars a day, I cannot help you. So the deal is I don't want to waste your time and I don't want to waste my time. So that's kind of like one that's on the fence and I love this girl. So I hope she can get her shit together. How do you, uh, you know, I guess I'm just going to think about the day to day, uh, how do you make people accountable? What are you using some kind of uh, technology to do this or how does it work for you? And like, let me, let me, let me pretend I walk into your office and you interview me and say, yeah, you're not a dirt bag. I think you can stick to the program. How do you implement it? Just, just give me a day in the life uh, for, for, All right. for so, she, so by the time you walk out of my office, you'll have a plan. I'll have already determined what kind of patient you are. If you are an upholder, if you're a questioner, I'll kind of determine what your fundamental workings are. You, I think that you're a guy who's in the military, you'll execute, you're like my other SEALs or operators, you'll get it done. I don't have to babysit you. I will expect you to check in with me in two weeks. We'll have a follow-up in a month, a month total, right? You'll let me know. If um, I know that you failed multiple times before and I know that you need accountability, then I will expect a communication with you every day for the first month. You will be emailing me every day for the first month, yes or no. Did you follow it or did you not? And then I typically add in some kind of consequence. So for example, for, and these are for patients that really struggle with that internal drive, but really want to get better. So I had um, 
one patient. I'm going to try to really make this so I don't give away too much of it. I had um, one, one female patient who I work with uh, other military operators, so SEALs and things, and she had an eating disorder. She had uh, bulimia. And the deal was, and again, this is extreme, but she was really close to getting uh, rid of it and, and being done with it. She'd been working on it for years. And I said, here's the deal. Next time you fuck up, you're going to send a mass email to me, master commander, the other SEALs that we're working with, how you couldn't follow your plan. Do you think that she ever did it again? <laughs> nope. <laughs> nope. Do she never did it again. She never did it again. So the why, the consequence has to be so substantial because ultimately when you run your mind, the mind is primary, right? So if you can run that organ well, you can do whatever it is. So if there's a consequence that is great enough, you will get yourself together. So I typically will put in a consequence like that. You know, I'll have sometimes they'll have them call the family members that they haven't talked to in 10 years, you know, and I'll say, okay, I want evidence that you called and spoke to this person. So it's, you know, they, they tend to be very truthful. So it's really about implementing a, a consequence. So again, if you're a patient that I know will execute, I don't need to babysit you. But I do want to get for you what you want for yourself. So if I know you need more help, then we'll get it done. Whatever it is, we will get it done. How many, uh, how many, how many patients are you seeing a day typically? What's a, what's a normal day? For I, see three, I see patients three days a week from 10 to 5. Uh, usually an hour-long visit. So whatever that is, sometimes it's a half an hour follow-up. I will be, so whatever that is per day, if that's, I don't know, six patients, seven patients per day, I will be scaling, I will be closing my practice in terms of how many people I will be letting in. What I will do is I will, I'm going to be moving to a membership model where I will take care of a certain amount. It'll allow me to have, um, more time to do the other things and also more time to just be solely focused on those in my practice. Yeah, I'm sure your patients appreciate that. I know when I was, uh, you know, practicing as a busy orthopedic surgeon, I mean, I would get, you know, I get five, six minutes some, with many of them. I mean, I, I'd often have, you know, a 15 minute block and there's three patients I'm supposed to see at that time. And, you know, some of them are just post-op follow-ups and you walk in there, you look at their incision, say, yeah, man, everything's good. Any problems? No. Okay. Get the hell out of here. We're seeing two weeks type of thing. But it is so much nicer to have, time to spend you know an hour talking with someone and it makes such a big yeah. difference and i love my patients i love my people uh i think that the individuals that come to my clinic are incredible individuals yeah and i think too with that like when you can have a situation where you're not just seeing us a, a different person on a very frequent basis and kind of going over the same basic fundamental things it's just it's so much more fulfilling from from your end of it too. I know from from my experience when I get like a coaching client or an ongoing consult client that we, you know we've been working together for six plus months, you start to like really start to have interesting discussions and digging into things like a lot deeper than you would ever be able to from a from a like a one and done type of setup. Yeah, and and I uh, I really genuinely care about them, and most of them don't just think of me as their physician. And I don't just think of them as patients. I absolutely treat them like their family. Yeah, that's an awesome, awesome thing. What, uh, um, how many, how many, you said you do some of it by remote. Uh, how, what percentage of your practice is remote and how does that work or none, or is it none? Um, so I see everyone in person once. I like to do a physical exam. I'd like to see them. I'd like to get a sense of who they are. 
and the way that I can best serve them is I need to see them once in person. After that, I don't need to see them again. Uh, a lot of people come in from all over the country. To, the, but the majority of patients like to come in. So I would say, I don't know, 90% of my patients love to come in and they'll fly back. They'll fly back to see me, we'll chat. Um, it's good to have face-to-face -face connection. I am gonna start to offer consulting where again, if I haven't seen you in person, I'm not ordering, I'm not prescribing hormones or any of that other stuff, but I will consult with you for your other physicians. So that is something that I will be offering in the future. Talk to me a little bit about, um, I guess, uh, you know, some of the, some of the lab works you do and what do you find to be, to be helpful in these situations? Because, uh, uh, you know, like I said, some of these things require just a little bit more, more work. I think the fundamental, I, I tend to order a lot of blood work because I like to have a really big picture. So I always order a full hormone panel, estrogen, estradiol, testosterone, free total, albumin, um, sex hormone binding globulin, full thyroid panel, including the antibodies, reverse T3. I always do iron studies and ferritin. I, do, I don't do leptin as much anymore. I used to um, do fasting leptin levels to determine if they were leptin resistance. But the more that I did that, I found it more equated to body fat. So I found that less effective. Um, I do full cholesterol panel, uh, inflammatory markers. I will run something called an ion test, which is a test with, I don't know if you've seen those tests, but it has a full breakdown of nutrients, uh, CoQ10, zinc, copper, we'll screen them for heavy metals, which I find a lot of metals, a lot of mercury, a lot of lead, especially with the military guys. Um, and I'll do a Dutch test, which shows me hormone metabolites, not just the big ones, but also the, all the metabolites, cortisol metabolites, cortisone. Um, what else? I think that pretty much, pretty much covers it. Yeah, I mean, it's a lot of blood. Let me ask you, uh, one of the things, one of the concerns with people eating a meat heavy, particularly red, heat, red meat heavy diet, and I would assume that a lot of your, your patients yeah. snakes is that it will cause problems with iron storage issues are you seeing that in practice because i, I, actually, not. I, am not. Yeah. I have never seen that in practice the only individuals that i've ever seen with i mean i've never seen it um yeah i've seen you know my you know my thought is we know that you know iron overload is an issue but it tends to run pretty closely with metabolic syndrome and i think it's probably a reverse causation type issue that probably having a screwed up metabolism tends to cause you to store more iron because, you know, I, like I said, you know, I've seen people that eat three, four, five pounds of red meat every day. And I mean, their iron levels are not out of their, their normal. I mean, they're, I mean, they're ferritin levels. And so they're not, they don't seem to be storing this stuff. So that's kind of interesting. The one thing that I do see with a protein heavy diet, which I've experienced myself is lower levels of potassium, magnesium, mm -hmm. um, also vitamin C, those kinds of things which doesn't easily supplemented. Yeah, sure. Um, certainly they can if you need to do that. That's not hard to do that. Let me ask, because you talked about, and this is something I, I don't really have a lot of knowledge on. You talk about the accumulation of heavy metals. I mean, how, are you, how, how do you deal with that? You have to put them through a chelation process. Um, and there's a standard way of, do, of doing it. Typically, they, you screen them in the blood, and that's actually the, the standard of care. But what I found is that until you provoke a metal, um, so you give them a provoking agent, and then you actually do the urine test and you send it away for sampling, you oftentimes see heavy metals. When you get that, you either do IV chelation or oral chelation, and then you test them 60 to 90 days later. 
a lot of people with mercury in their mouth, they still have amalgams, really have to pull that out. And it affects fertility. So what we're seeing in the regular population as well as the military is that these kinds of weapons exposure, metals exposure tend to affect spermatogenesis and fertility. Interesting. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I'm, I'm certainly aware of the chelation. I just didn't know how how well it worked in practice. You know, it's it does work. It absolutely works. Um, arsenic. I don't know what I think about it. There's not a lot of good data. There's a lot of arsenic that can just show up in the food. Am I worried about that? No. But you know, I am worried about mercury and lead. Those are both pretty toxic. What do you do personally with your own diet and exercise program? Just just because you know, obviously, it. it you know, again, I think. You know, you know, when you go to a physician, it doesn't matter who you go to. If you go to a, a dentist and his teeth are all falling out, you know, you're kind of like, man, maybe he's not the best guy. You go to a physician, it's, it's their supposed task is to get you fitter, leaner, healthier. You know, you like to see that they can at least practice that in, your whole, in their own life. So tell me about your own personal routine, if you don't mind. Yeah, I am an intermittent faster. I tend to use time-restricted feeding. It just works well for me. So I typically train in the morning and I've been working a lot more with kettlebells. I had some pretty substantial injuries that I've been working on healing over the past two and a half years. It's taken quite some time. I ripped both hamstring, tore shoulder, uh, labrum piriformis as an orthopedic surgeon. I really, I overachieved in that aspect. You shouldn't train, you shouldn't train with the military. I mean, it's really hard to keep up if you're a tiny female, but whatever. <laughs> So uh, in the mornings, I typically do, I have a well laid out plan. I don't think that anything should be haphazard. So right now I'm working with Melissa Paris. Your listeners should check her out. She is amazing. So she is a really, she's really strong, strong, tiny little one. And um, we're doing a lot of kettlebells. So I'm doing a lot of kettlebell work, pull-up work. Um, so that is, I train about, I train five days a week, you know, with weights. I'd probably train more. Uh, I do allow for some recovery. And uh, I do sauna. So I sauna three days a week. Um, I do, in terms of cardio, I only do high intensity interval cardio and that'll be two to three days a week. And everything is measured, whether it's a row or a ski erg. I used to love sprinting. I'm working on getting back there or ropes, um, but I don't like the ropes as much because you can't track your progress, right? So it's kind of like how fast are you going? Well, I don't know. Um, yeah, and then I, I try to always be active. I have a pull-up bar in my office. So I do that between patients and that's, that's pretty much it. And, and, and it's, it's very similar to kind of the way I train. I mean, I do a lot of the similar stuff, you know, with, with, with that stuff. And, I, and I'm a big fan of the kettlebell. And obviously with the, you know, if the Concept 2 stuff, I, I, I do a lot of that stuff. And I, I think they make some great equipment. Let me talk, because you talked about eating, you know, even though you're a small, you know, a small, tiny female, you're still putting yeah. away two, two, yeah. pounds of, two pounds of ground beef a day. What else is on your diet? So I typically, so I do use extra virgin olive oil. I'll use that. I'll make sure that I use a tablespoon um per on my meals and i'll use i use a lot of potassium salt which is called that new salt i find that that helps me keep my potassium levels up from when i test it in the blood uh, i do i'll do a little bit of avocado i really don't the truth of the matter is and i probably haven't talked about this before uh in public but i don't eat a lot of greens i uh i'll supplement in terms of fiber i don't know i know that the data says that you need it uh, i don't feel so great when i have a high fiber diet so I will, I don't eat a ton of vegetables. I'll use some green powder. I use first forms green powder and maybe I'll throw some fiber in there, but I feel great. And that's what works well for me. Yeah. I mean, that's, again, that's the end of the day, how you feel. I mean, I know there's people that will talk to us about 
you know, this is what the epidemiology suggests. And I, and I would say it's more, it's only a suggestion and don't take it as fact. You know, we can't use population-based studies to, to tell you individually what to eat. And so, yeah, that's, that's the thing I've found, particularly, you know, with the fiber thing, there are people that, uh, you know, because your, your former colleague Lane and I got into a little discussion about fiber. And I said, look, I don't think it's essential. And, you know, he said, well, it's, it's obviously beneficial. And I said, well, I think it might be in certain situations. So it's kind of an interesting uh, topic that more and more people are starting. You know, the nice thing is more and more people are just questioning stuff. And I think that's yeah. one, of the, one of the crazy things about having us all being interconnected and, you know, we're, you know, I'm talking to you from the other side of the country and uh, yeah. able, to, able to get together and collaborate and, and, and kind of get this stuff. A lot of interesting information is coming out there. And we're kind of, I talk about the fact that we all, we have the opportunity to kind of crowdsource source questions now, because in the old days, it was just, you know, it was up to a single researcher to come up with an idea and test it and get it paid for and funded and, you know, peer reviewed and, you know, it may never see the light of day. And now we can, we can, we can ask, you know, you can say, Hey guys, what do you think about this product? Why don't 10,000 of you test it, test it and get back with us? And, you know, we'll get an answer. And so I think that's, yeah. that's kind of a cool, cool concept. That's coming and I think out. ultimately we all as practitioners all want the best for people. And I think that um, a lot of the general public feels maybe that there's feuds among us, but it's not, we really, I mean, at least from my perspective, I'm not going to bash a vegan. Um, you know, we're, they all have something that works. And I think that when you're kind of, Within the science, you don't, it doesn't really become emotional. At least for me, it doesn't. Um, and I think that we all really want to try to do the best for people. And I think that that's pretty important. Yeah, and I would agree. You know, we had, we had a, you know, Dr. Joel Kahn, who's a vegan cardiologist, who, I, you know, I go back and forth with him kind of in a, in a joking manner. I, I consider it just kind of, you know, collegial poking fun. But I mean, certainly I get my share of, you know, you're a Nazi, you're an evil person, I hope you die stuff from, from the, kind of the idiots out there. And I, and I kind of laugh at that stuff. And I mean, I fully support their right, anyone's right to, to make their own decisions yeah. and eat how they want. But the problem is, from my view, is, is that, you know, those things are not equally being shared and we're being sort of asked to maybe all of us go plant-based. And I think that to me is a problem and, and, I, and I'll, I'll continue, I'll continue to, to push back against that. And, you know, it's good to you see. Know, and too. being a, a geriatrician, being trained as a geriatrician, I saw the end of life. And I'll tell you who the sickest were. And those were the vegan and vegetarians. And I'm not, you know, I was vegetarian for a long time. But unless you've been at the bedside of someone who's dying, and you've been with the families of individuals who are dying and at the end of their life, then the kind of conversation doesn't have the same weight. And I know you've been at the bedside of those individuals and actually seen it. I've seen it. So when you have people that are very opinion and not science-based giving whatever their expert opinions who are not experts and really influencing the livelihood of individuals, that's, that's when it becomes dangerous. Yeah. And I think too, like to kind of go back to what you were saying before about just, just the access to the, you know, the doctors and professors out there who've kind of done the deep dives into some of these things and things that I see more too is like, seems like people are, they're more willing to listen to their body and then ask questions or pro, like, pry in a little bit from the professionals to find out, well, what is going on here? Why am I feeling like this when it's flying in the face of what this person is saying me? And it's like, we're kind of getting away from that time where it's like, well, here's what I'm going to do. Here's what everyone should do because you know, doctor's orders. And it's like, I mean, it's, it's fine for us to, I think, tune into that stuff and look at what the consensus is amongst a lot of the medical professionals and things like that. And maybe that's a great starting point, but uh, I think ultimately letting your body be the guide and then having someone who has those credentials 
willing to help you and say like, okay, if you're feeling good doing it this way, I don't see any reason not to. And having that open mind from that side of things too. Yeah. I think that, that that's very appropriate. Hey, Gabriel, let me ask uh, just because we want to be respectful of your time here. Um, where, you know, if, if a patient was interested in, in, you know, if somebody wanted to, you know, have you as, as their, their physician, how would they go about doing that? And then talk to us about maybe where we can find you, you know, normally. And then are you, are, are you going to have some, are you, do you do, I know you do some, maybe you do some speaking as well. I can't remember I if you're do. doing that. Can you, I do. You I do a lot of speaking yeah. and educating. Let, let's First, talk I'll about your yeah, schedule on okay. that. So individuals can sign, can find me on the regular social media handles, right? So Instagram, Dr. Gabrielle Lyon, that has a link tree with my website, which is drgabriellelyon.com. I have Facebook, Twitter. I am most active on Instagram. If an individual wants to come see me as a patient, then they can find that information on my website or message me or my team through Instagram, or I have a practice on 50 uh, Fifth Avenue and 61st called the Ash Center. They can find me there and that's in Manhattan. If you would like a Skype consult, you can also message me again, but I won't be prescribing medications. Uh, I also see a lot of military operators. So if you guys are out there and listening, I want to support you. Definitely come see me and uh, there's other ways that I can help you. Um, that, that's how they can find me. Oh, and speaking, I am part of Jason Redman. Do you know who Jason Redman is? Former Lieutenant Jason Redman. I, I, I seem to remember the name, but I can't, not off the top of my head. So. Yeah, he's an amazing individual. He was the, he, in Fallujah, Iraq, he got shot seven times by enemy fire. Uh, had his face completely blown off, 37 surgeries. You know him, he's an American hero. Anyway, I'm part of his Eagle Rise Speakers Bureau. So I'm happy to come to talk to individuals in there. I speak for corporations, you name it. I'm happy to be there. Awesome. I just wrote that stuff down so we can throw it in the show notes. So folks, if you want to go check out more from Dr. Lyon, uh, those links will be there. Uh, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's been awesome. Uh, yeah. I learned a lot. I think Sean learned a lot. Hopefully maybe you learned one thing from the two of us combined. <laughs> uh, but yeah, it was, it was great to, great to have you on. Thank you so much for having me. I really, really enjoy this. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast with hosts Dr. Sean Baker and Zach Bitter. If you enjoyed the show, please consider following us on social media and checking out our websites. Links to those can be found in the show notes. Also, if you have any questions or comments, please do not hesitate to shoot us an email at hpopodcast at gmail.com. Thanks again for tuning into the show.